welcome to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival. My name is Andrew Eaton-Lewis, and in this series I'm talking to fascinating people from the worlds of astronomy, psychology and the arts about our festival themes, winter, darkness and the night sky. Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with the Scotsman, and this year's festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader. Carrie Leibowitz is a health psychologist at Stanford University whose work on what she calls wintertime mindset has generated media coverage across the world. Carrie spent a year in Tromso in the north of Norway trying to find out why people in one of the coldest, darkest places in the world show remarkably low rates of wintertime depression. Over the past year, the lockdown has led to a new wave of interest in Carrie's work, as so many people began to face the prospect of a long, lonely winter. As someone who also lives in a place with long hours of darkness in winter, I wanted to find out more about Carrie's research. I began by asking her what winter is like where she now lives, California. It's interesting because I've, I've lived all over the U.S., so I grew up at the Jersey Shore, which has... Um, what you know, we in America refer to as more of a real winter and more significant seasons. And now here that I live in San Francisco in Northern California, um, it doesn't get so cold in the winter. Maybe it'll get down to, you know, ten degrees Celsius or five degrees Celsius at night. But people still find a way to complain about the winter, even when it's mild. Is what I found. Like. All it takes is a few days of rain in Northern California for people to be just griping and uh, and canceling plans even. Um, and of course, you know, when it gets dark earlier because of daylight savings, oh. you know, no matter how sort of mild the climate is, people really tend to feel that darkness and really tend to... Um, be upset about it getting dark earlier, even when we don't have sort of the stereotypical cold that accompanies winter in lots of parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. So, so lots of work for somebody who deals in kind of wintertime mindset then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's a 24-7 job to, uh, you know, be a positive wintertime mindset ambassador. <laughs> And um, so before we come on to the, the whole idea of the wintertime winter mindset, which I'd like to explain yeah. in some depth, um, I, I wanted to ask you about Jersey Shore uh, and, and growing up there. As, I mean, when, when you Google um, Jersey Shore, actually, the first thing that comes up is, is a reality TV show about, about a bunch <laughs> of folk on being housemates in a, in a, in a vacation um, house. So, um, but my, my impression of, it's not somewhere I've ever been Jersey Shore, but my impression of it is it's quite a sort of holiday destination for people on the East Coast. Is that right? That's right. I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite grateful if the Jersey Shore reality show hasn't made it to Scotland because it's a bit <laughs> infamous in the U.S. for all sorts of debauchery and bad behavior and, uh, somewhat unsavory characters. And for a while, you know, saying I was from the Jersey Shore was a good thing. And then at the height of that reality show, it became um, a little bit of a, a joke to say you were from the Jersey Shore. But our other claim to fame is I'm from the town where Bruce Springsteen is from. So uh, okay. uh, that's our main thing. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because when you grow up somewhere year round, it can take you a little while to realize that it's a vacation destination for oh. other people, oh. you know? And so I think 
for me, it was just my hometown growing up. And then only, and of course I realized that the summers were special because we live by the beach and everything really comes to life. And there's a lot of beach culture. You know, my best friend growing up, her dad would go surfing before he would go to work in the morning. And so we're surrounded by that sort of beach culture. But it was only when I got a little bit older that I realized that actually in the summer, the whole population changes. And there's a lot of people who come down from um, New York, especially from Brooklyn. Uh, The nickname for these tourists at the Jersey Shore is is called Bennies. I don't know if you have nicknames for people who come to the island, but, you know, there's a, you know, we call them Bennies. Uh, It's an artifact of an acronym from where they're from. But a lot of people coming down from New York or Brooklyn to their summer homes on the Jersey Shore. And so you go from being in this town that is very New Jersey to, tons of traffic, tons of people, all New York City license plates, um, and the the population totally changes. And there's sort of a different community, like the people who come down just for the summer every year have their own community and their own culture that feels very different from that of the locals and the people who are living there year-round. How did that impact on how you felt about winter growing up? Yeah, I think, you know, implicitly... And probably even explicitly, summer was the best season. And that was just, it wasn't even something that I thought was an opinion. It was something that I thought was a universal truth. Like summer is the best, you know, the town is coming alive and everybody's going to the beach. There's so much more to do because you can be at the beach, you can be at the boardwalk, you can be eating outside, you can go to the carnival. There's all these sorts of lively summer events that in the winter sort of disappear. And growing up, it was just such a fact and so stark that, you know, summer was the best time of year. And it was only when I was much older that I started to realize, well, summer comes with its own costs. Everybody's complaining about the traffic, complaining about the tourists, complaining about the crowds. Winter, we have it all to ourselves. The beach can be beautiful and calm and still in the winter, but that wasn't really part of the sort of cultural narrative growing up where it was really summer heavy, which of course I think is also conflated with the fact that for kids, you're out of school in the summer. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. there's a natural tendency for the summer to feel more fun anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I suspect it's quite similar here. I mean, I've only lived here for a couple of years, but um, it's, it's very busy with tourists in the summer. And I, I find that a lot of people here actually prefer the winter because it's quieter. They have the place for themselves. And um, you know, the, the weather is kind of famously wild here. It's, it's, it's very, very strong winds. It's very, very cold, very long hours of darkness. But yeah, people do prefer the winter. But of course, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't. Um, a, a lot of people find winter very difficult. And, th- and this is something you, 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 start, you talk about in the introduction to your research, that there is a lot of research connecting poor mental health to, to the, the long months of winter. That's right. So, you know, basically, if you look up psychological research on the effects of the seasons or the effects of winter, the vast majority of it is going to be about seasonal affective disorder, which is sort of this, you know, wintertime depression that we've heard of. And and actually, seasonal affective disorder is technically, it's any recurrent seasonal pattern of depression. So you could have summertime depression, but that's relatively uncommon. And so all sort of the theory around seasonal affective disorder is that it's tied to the winter. And there's even a specific component um, 
that was sort of explained by the researchers who developed seasonal affective disorder, and that's called the latitude hypothesis. And this hypothesis is that as you get farther north or south from the equator, where you have less sun in the winter, you should have more rates of seasonal affective disorder. And they came to this hypothesis because they found that people who had this seasonal affective disorder, if they were treated with light therapy, it helped alleviate some of their symptoms. And so they sort of, you know, reverse engineered that hypothesis of if light makes the symptoms better, then less light must make it worse, which is really interesting because that might be true, you know, at some latitudes, but certainly what I found is people who live in places where it gets extremely dark in the winter actually have adapted to it perhaps even more than people who live at these sort of middling latitudes where they have some darkness. And so this idea that the darkness is responsible for wintertime depression is sort of baked into that research on seasonal affective disorder. But that part of the research is a little bit tenuous depending on what population you're looking at. Mm. So this was kind of the starting point for your research, the, the, the fact that there is kind of contradictory um, uh, evidence about the relationship between wintertime and, uh, and mental health. So um, I think your, your research started when you uh, were doing a, a PhD um, at, um, at Stanford, is that right? Actually, it was just before I started my PhD at Stanford. And in the year before that, I did um, I, I received a U.S.-Norway Fulbright Fellowship, which is a, a research grant that allowed me to go to Norway and conduct research. And um, it was sort of a precursor to what I'm doing now in my PhD at Stanford. Okay. Now, so let's talk about wintertime mindset. I mean, before, but I guess before we talk about what wintertime mindset is, we have to talk about what mindset is. So um, for the benefit of those of us who don't have a psychology degree, so tell me what mindset is. That's right. Well, one of the things I like about the term mindset is that everybody probably has some intuition of what a mindset is, but we think of it in psychology as a framework that orients our understanding of the world. So if you think about something like winter, there's a lot of contradictory information that we have to take in about winter, right? So let's say it's, you know, you have a big snowfall. It's both true that the world is quiet and beautiful and everything is so soft and the light is gorgeous and that it might be harder to get to work. You're going to have to shovel your driveway. You're going to have to clean off your car. And so you have all this information about everything that you do as a person. There's lots to take in. And mindsets are sort of mental shortcuts. They're organizing frameworks. And so, for example, if I have the mindset that you know, winter is dreadful, I might be more likely to notice some of these negative aspects of winter and focus on the fact that, oh, now I'm going to have to shovel my driveway. Whereas if I have the general mindset that winter is wonderful, I might be more attuned to the positive aspects of winter. And so it's really sort of an overall framework that helps organize the information that we take in and shape sort of our expectations and what we think the world is going to be like. Okay, so give me, give me an example of a bad wintertime mindset or negative wintertime mindset. Yeah, so I mean, a negative wintertime mindset is this idea that winter is dreadful. It's something to dread and be avoided, that it's a really limiting time of year. So you might focus on all of the things that you love to do in other seasons that you can't do. So if you're really into hiking or biking or 
rollerblading or going to the beach or swimming, you might just be dwelling on the fact that those are things that feel inaccessible to you in the winter. You might really have this um, expectation that darkness is going to make you feel sad or lethargic in a way that you really don't like. And so that might make these things more likely to be true, right? That if you have this mindset that there's nothing to enjoy about the winter and that winter just represents a time of year when you can't do the things you like to do, then you're going to be noticing all the times that you're stuck inside, that you know, you're bored on a Friday night because you can't be in a picnic with your friends in the park. Um, all the times that, you know, you start hitting a slump around, you know, three or four o'clock in the afternoon when the sun is setting um, or whatever time it sets on the Isle of Lewis. <laughs> um, and so you might be uh, really just fixated on all of those aspects of winter. Okay. Okay. So you get this opportunity to uh, travel to right to the north of Norway, to, to Tromsø, which is um, about, about 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And um, I, I believe it has about two months of complete, almost complete darkness in winter or, or no direct sunlight anyway. That's right. That's right. From November 21st to January 21st is what's called the polar night. So the sun sets below the horizon and doesn't return. So it does have a few hours of this sort of civil twilight, you know, the, the time right before the sun rises or right after it sets where the sky is sort of light, but there's no direct sun. It has a few hours of that a day as the sun sort of skirts the horizon, but you never actually see the sun during those two months of the polar night. Okay. So, so how did you feel at the time about the prospect of spending a year in this place? I was nervous. I mean, of course I chose to go there. I signed up to do this research study there and um, there was excitement, but there was certainly uh, some anxiety and it was really uh, exacerbated by the people I talked to in the US who, you know, the common things I heard when I told them that I was going to go live in Tromso during the winter were things like, I could never do that. I would be so depressed. I hate the winter. My favorite was when people would ask me, are you going to go to Tromso to study why people aren't depressed and get depressed yourself during the winter? So like, you know, all of the information that was bombarding me was telling me that I was going to have a miserable time, that it was going to be a slog, that it was going to be one of the great challenges of my life to survive this winter. Mm. So what were your first impressions of the place when you got there? It's really funny because I think my time in Tromso was a lesson in myself of my own mindset. And when I got there, you know, I had read all this stuff about how Tromso was so gorgeous and it's surrounded by fjords and mountains and nature. And I think when I landed there, you know, I was moving to this foreign country. I didn't know anyone. I had sort of blown up my happy life to do this crazy thing. And I just thought it was so depressing. I just like, it was so wet and gray and you know, I, I was like, where's all this beautiful wooden Norwegian architecture I was promised and everything is so bleak and industrial and I just was not enamored. And I, I mean, I have to make sure to say that Tromso is gorgeous and it only took me a little while of becoming more comfortable and happy there myself to totally 
fall in love with the city and to sort of, you know, spend time in downtown where the, you know, there is beautiful architecture and Mm. the nature is incredible and the fjords are there. But I just remember this bus ride from the airport takes a, a particularly unattractive route through the city and just thinking that everything looked so dull and ugly um, when I first got there. I, I read somewhere that the, the question you were originally going to ask in your research was, why aren't people in Tromso more depressed during the winter? And but once you got there, you realized that the question you were asking was the wrong one. Tell me about that. That's right. So, you know, I was I had done a bunch of this research on seasonal affective disorder and the latitude hypothesis that sort of supposed that people in Tromso should have rel- relatively high rates of seasonal affective disorder. But there were a bunch of studies out of Norway and out of Tromso finding that that wasn't the case. So, for example, there was one study comparing uh, students in Tromso to students living in southern Italy and found no difference in the rates of seasonal affective disorder between those two groups. So, of course, seasonal affective disorder still exists there. People still have winter depression. But the point is that it's not at these higher rates than people in other parts of the world that you would expect from somewhere where the sun doesn't rise for two months. And so as a psychologist, I thought that was really interesting. And so I went there to be like, why aren't people depressed? Like maybe I can figure out that sort of secret sauce and, you know, we could all benefit from that during the winter um, to understand, you know, how these people are making it through the winter without becoming depressed. And then when I got there and I started talking to the the people in Tromso, I was sort of explaining my research to them and sort of asking them what they thought. And the responses I got were sort of like, well, why would I be depressed? Like, winter is great. And I'd be like, you know, what about the polar night? Like, it's so dark, the sun doesn't rise. Oh, the polar night is so beautiful, you know? We get this soft light. I, you know, people would tell me that they refuse to call it the dark time, which is the literal translation of the Norwegian word. The Norwegian word is uh, marketed, which is dark time, but that they, you know, insisted on calling it the blue time because it's actually a time of tremendous color and soft lighting. And people talked about how they love to go skiing in the winter or how it was a really cozy time of year or all of these things that they enjoy doing. And so my research question of why aren't people more depressed here was sort of met with, you know, this idea of like, well, why would you assume that we would be depressed? Winter is great. And so I realized it was sort of my own Jersey Shore upbringing, American preconceptions of what winter would be like there that were leading me to that research question. And that a better research question would be, something like, you know, how do people here enjoy the winter? Or what is it that allows people to really thrive and love the winter here in Trump? So what is it about their psychology or their behavior that makes winter such a special time of year? And then through this research, you discovered something quite remarkable. And, and this discovery was made through um, a thing you came up with called the, called the wintertime mindset scale, which I thought was really interesting. Tell, tell, tell me about that. Yeah, so there's um, a growing body of research on how our mindsets, you know, our subjective thoughts and beliefs 
shape our health and well-being. So some of the most well-known work on this topic is by Carol Dweck, who's looked at mindsets about intelligence. Um, so, you know, if you believe that intelligence is something that you can grow and increase with effort, then students have better outcomes in school and they try harder than if they believe that, you know, intelligence is fixed. So I was really inspired by this domain of research on the power of mindsets. Um, and when I was thinking about how we could capture the way people in Tromso related to the winter positively, there was really nothing out there that allowed me to do that. There were no existing psychological measures or scales because all of the psychological literature was focused on seasonal affective disorder, was focused on are you depressed or not? And there was nothing out there to measure, okay, how much do you love the winter? How much do you enjoy the winter? And so um, my colleague, my mentor, who I was working with at the University of Tromso, Yara Vitterso and I decided that we wanted to try to come up with something that would allow us to capture a positive relationship with winter. And we thought that mindset as a framework, given the literature on mindset in other domains, might be a really useful way to do this. And so um, after talking to lots of Norwegians and reading some of the um, other research on mindsets in other areas, like not just intelligence, but mindsets about stress or mindsets about aging, we came up with this scale that is intended to measure what people think about when they think about winter. So, you know, do you think of winter as a time of year where there's many things you enjoy doing? Do you think of winter as a time of year to dread? Do you think of winter as a time of year that is especially beautiful and cozy and lovely? Or do you think of it as a time that's dark and depressing where you don't feel like doing anything at all. Um, and so we created these items in this scale to try to capture people's positive relationship to winter. Okay. And, and you spoke to people uh, or, or you asked people questions from three different places, right? From, from Oslo in the south of Norway, in Tromso itself, and then in Svalbard. Uh, tell me why you did that. That's right. So um, we administered the scale to three different populations of Norwegians, and we really wanted to see how much winter darkness and sort of latitude of living would affect what people thought about the winter. Um, and so we looked at Oslo, which is, you know, the capital city of Norway. It's, you know, relatively far south for Norway. It's in the south, although it's about the same attitude. Uh, latitude as Anchorage, Alaska. So for an American, that's still quite far north. Um, but but Tromso is much farther north than that. Um, it's about the distance. Sorry, everything I do is on an American scale because <laughs> that's where I'm, but it's about the distance from Miami to New York is the distance from Oslo to Tromso. Yeah. But one thing that's really interesting about Tromso is that it's on the Gulf Stream. And so um, it's actually warmer than you would think uh, given how far north it is. So average winter temperatures are probably around negative five degrees Celsius, which for being, you know, 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle is not that cold. Um, but because they're so much farther north than Oslo, they get significantly less sunlight in the winter. So they have this polar night period where Oslo is still getting, you know, four to five hours of direct sunlight a day in the winter. And so Oslo and Tromso are really interesting to compare because you're sort of removing the effect of coldness and weather on 
sort of mental well-being, but you're really focusing on in on the darkness that varies between these two locations. And then Svalbard is really interesting because Svalbard is super extreme. So Svalbard is an Arctic island that's about halfway between northern Norway and the North Pole. And Svalbard is so far north that they get a completely dark polar night. So they have none of this civil twilight, no ambient daylight for two full months. So no difference between night and day. It's also um, quite an extreme place to live. It's very self-selecting. So the main town of Longyearbyen has about 2,000 people. It's not the kind of thing where you're born and raised there as you might be in Tromso. It's usually people moving there, um, often just for a few years at a time, although there are people who live there for a long time. But you know, it's so extreme that, for example, if you leave the main town, you're required by law to carry a gun with you in case you encounter a polar bear. Um, you're also not allowed to die in Svalbard. So if you're sick, you have to go back to the mainland because the permafrost is so hard in the ground that you can't bury anyone. And so there's no place to, you know, have a graveyard or anything. You're not allowed to give birth because if there's any complications, the hospital can't accommodate you. So if you stay there too long while you're pregnant, the sheriff, I believe, will come knocking on your door and telling you it's time to go to the mainland. So it's a really wild place and it's a really self-selecting population, but it is a really extreme winter. And so we wanted to compare, you know, all within the same country, all within a relatively similar culture of Norway. Although of course, you know, I'm sure the Isle of Lewis can tell you that culture varies widely, you know, between places in, in a country. We wanted to compare these three groups because we thought they would be especially interesting case studies for understanding winter. And then the remarkable thing is that you discovered variations between these three places. We did. So what we found across the board was that a more positive wintertime mindset was associated with greater well-being, which we measured in January. So it's sort of, you know, in the heart of winter. Um, and so if you had a more positive wintertime mindset, you were also more likely to have greater life satisfaction. So you're happier with your life. Um, you might, you're more likely to experience more positive emotions. So on a regular basis, you're just feeling good more of the time. Um, you're more likely to be someone who, um, finds joy and opportunity in personal growth. So someone who, um, pursues a life that's not just sort of feel good, but also meaningful by doing things that are sometimes difficult or challenging that leads to personal growth. And there's a lot of evidence that that leads to sort of richer, more meaningful um, feelings of well-being. So we found across the board that wintertime mindset was associated with well-being. But we also found that as you went farther north, people had a more positive wintertime mindset. So in our sample, the people in Svalbard had the most positive wintertime mindset, which is interesting because, of course, they experienced the most extreme winter, but perhaps it's because they're a bit of a self-selecting sample, right? You're not going to move to Svalbard if you don't have a really positive wintertime mindset. Um, but we found that that was true for Tromso and Oslo as well. So people in Tromso had a significantly more positive wintertime mindset than people in Oslo. And that's interesting because... You know, of course, some people move to Tromso because they just really love the winter, but Tromso is sort of like any other European city. There's people who are born and raised there who don't love the climate. There's people who move there for jobs, you know, not drawn by the weather. Um, and so even though, you know, the 
the sort of makeup of the kinds of people who live there might be relatively similar between Tromso and Oslo, people in Tromso are experiencing the winter much more positively, even though people in Oslo still experience a really cold, dark winter by, you know, the standards of much of the world. So is, is there other research that has found something similar or is this, or is this quite a new discovery? So the, the framework of wintertime mindset was really brand new. Um, and I'm very hopeful that other researchers will be interested in this and will want to conduct more research in Norway and elsewhere. Um, there's been a lot of work in Tromso sort of fighting against the seasonal affective disorder hypothesis. So there's there have been a lot of studies about sleep because, you know, the variation in light um, makes for, you know, really extreme sleep patterns. And people do report more trouble sleeping in the winter, but they also report more trouble sleeping in the summer when, you know, the sun doesn't set at all for 24 hours a day. And um, there is some evidence that I think the sleep problems are even worse in the summer than in the winter. Um, There are, you know, also have been a lot of studies looking at things like mental distress, finding that there's not huge variation in mental distress between summer and winter. Um, you know, some minor fluctuations are normal, but nothing really major with a seasonal pattern. So this work on wintertime mindset was certainly in line with what research had shown in Tromso, which is that people there aren't that depressed in the winter. And I think it's really in line with people's lived experience. So I think you know, this research might sound novel and exciting to people who don't live in Tromso, but I think most people who live there would be like, yeah, like I already knew this, you know, like I'm not telling the people of Northern Norway, I don't think something they didn't already know, which is that winter can be great. Um, It's just that I think it's really powerful and important to capture this scientifically because when all of the conversation scientifically around winter is around the ways winter can be bad for you. Mm. That is another way that reinforces the idea that we should be feeling more depressed in the winter or winter is a bad time of year. And, you know, my sort of bigger goal is that by adding this sort of positive mindset element to the conversation that we'll now have a scientific and a psychological framework for discussing all of the benefits and opportunities that are present in winter. So, so having arrived in Norway with a bit of trepidation, shall we say, I mean, what, what, was, what was your experience like of being there, your own experience? Yeah, it was interesting because it was a mixed bag. Um, and that, that's something that I really like about mindset is that there's room for complexity there, right? So thinking that winter is wonderful doesn't mean ignoring the fact that sometimes it's uncomfortable to be cold or sometimes you do have to shovel your driveway and that's a hassle or the fact that if you're homeless, no amount of wintertime mindset is going to make the winter wonderful for you. But mindset can help us sort of orient and lean towards one particular sort of lens of this sort of complex reality, which is that winter, like any season, has good things and bad things. And so that was really my experience in Tromso. So some of my favorite memories were from um, January, just at the end of the polar night, when I I actually had my best friends who grew up with me at the Jersey Shore came to visit me in Norway. And the light was so beautiful. I mean, you only get a few hours a day, but it's like, imagine the most gorgeous sunset you've ever seen for four hours. And you know, the way that if you watch a beautiful sunset, the light shifts every few minutes, 
Like that's what the whole day can feel like in Tromsø during the polar night. And, you know, Norway's quite magical. There's whales swimming in the fjords and you're seeing the Northern lights. And like, if there's a place to fall in love with winter, it's gotta be Northern Norway. So those parts of winter were some of my favorite times, including also, you know, Tromsø does Christmas celebrations really well. Um, and so everything is really cozy and lit up and wonderful for Christmas. And I loved that. Um, I also personally had some sleeping trouble, especially in the beginning of December leading up to Christmas when you're in the full polar night at the very beginning. And I really struggled because the university closed. So, you know, I'm very American. Like we work up until, you know, December 23rd. And in Norway, it's like, you know, come December 5th, 6th, 7th, like things are shutting down. And so I had planned to go back to New Jersey for the holidays, but not till much later. And so I had this time period in Norway where the university was closed. I couldn't go to the gym. Everybody was on holiday. There wasn't that much to do. And it was dark all the time. And so I found myself really sleeping a lot and like having a hard time getting up and motivating myself to go out. And so that was really a part of my experience when I first encountered the polar night. And then, you know, by the time I um, was there in January, I think I was much better at finding a rhythm. And of course, having my friends visit helped give me lots of motivation to do fun things. Um, and so I, you know, I, I really saw the, the power of routine and circumstances in interacting with your environment and your mindset to sort of shape what your experience is. So it sounds like it's been, the whole thing was quite an inspirational experience for you personally. I mean, it really was. I, it remains one of the highlights of my life, um, so much so that I feel like I'll be spending a long time chasing the adventure that I felt when I lived in Tromso. Um, but I just think that, you know, it was, there's two, a couple of things going on. I think anyone who's ever moved somewhere new, I mean, you just moved to the Isle of Lewis recently, you know, that, that feeling of moving somewhere brand new, especially somewhere that's quite different, um, I think can be a really empowering thing. Um, you know, there's not, you know, being someone who moves from your home country, there's lots of loneliness and there's lots of soul searching, but there's also a real feeling of strength that comes from, you know, feeling like you did that and feeling like you were capable of that, as well as the pure joy and pleasure that comes with falling in love with another culture and experiencing a different way of life and just opening yourself up to the different ways that people in the world can exist and using that to inform what you want your life to look like. Um, and then of course, I think there's something special about Tromso. I really do. Um, you know, as I sort of mentioned, I, you know, I'd, I'd be walking home from the bus and see the Northern lights dancing overhead and the people there were incredibly warm and kind and welcoming. Um, totally contrary to all the stereotypes I'd heard about Scandinavians being unfriendly. People were just really wonderful. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a beautiful small city on the edge of adventure, you know, just surrounded by these fjords. And I feel a little bit of the way that I feel about the Jersey shore, you know, that it might be this gem for other people who go there, but I lived there and I feel some pride and ownership over that. And I think that falling in love with a sense of place, whether you've moved to, London or Edinburgh or New York or, you know, rural Pennsylvania, rural Norway, like, you know, when you really connect with a place, um, I think that that really stays with you and, and makes a mark on you. And I think that 
Tromso did that for me. And then, then after your year in Norway, you returned to America. Um, you, you started your PhD at Stanford, um, uh, and you've completed and, and, and published this this research. And and you've gone on to kind of continue this wintertime mindset work in in, in different ways. Tell, tell me about the kind of the, the legacy of this research for you. That's right. So. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's been so exciting to me about wintertime mindset is how much people are eager for this. So, you know, I think there's two kinds of people. There's the people who love winter, who are excited about this research because it validates their experience that they might have felt they were in the minority about. And I've talked to so many people who are like, everyone thinks I'm crazy, but I love winter. Here's all the wonderful things I love to do in the winter. And then there's the people who hate winter who are like, I need this. And so I think wintertime mindset is really for everyone. And I've really enjoyed writing about it and speaking about it. And sort of in my time since doing my research, you know, a lot of people have wanted to know, well, how can I, how can I cultivate a positive wintertime mindset? I can see that it would be useful, but what does that look like? What does that feel like? And so I've really thought about, you know, what I observed in Norway, talked to a lot of people sort of from around the world, Norway, but also Canada and the UK and um, the Northern United States and seen what they do when they are really taking advantage of winter opportunities. Um, and so now I get to do really fun things like do an interview for the Dark Skies Festival and give workshops on cultivating a positive wintertime mindset. Um, and of course, I spent a while writing up the academic paper because academic publishing is um, quite a lengthy process. And so that was a fun continuation of the research as well. And so um, I think that, I hope that this is sort of still the beginning of wintertime mindset and that, you know, we'll continue looking at it in the future and in my research, actually, I'm a, an interventionist. So, you know, what we did in Norway was we looked at the association between wintertime mindset and well-being. But yes. I want to know, could we help people change their wintertime mindset and then see if it shapes their well-being? So, you know, if you come to my workshop and you learn, you know, the steps for cultivating a positive wintertime mindset, does that actually affect your well-being over the course of the winter? And that's you know, some, I do that research in other domains um, as part of my work at Stanford. And so I'd love to do something like that as well. Okay. So uh, imagine for a moment that I am one of those people who really hates the winter. You know, the, the second group of people you were talking about. Um, I live in the Hebrides. It's dark. It's really dark. <laughs> Long hours <laughs> of darkness. It's really cold. The weather's terrible. What can I do to make myself feel better about, about this situation? <laughs> That's right. So I think that there are three strategies that people do who have a really positive wintertime mindset. I'll say them and then I'll explain each of them. So the first is to get outside. The second is to make winter special. And the third is to appreciate winter. Um, so getting outside, that means even when it's dark and cold and maybe even wet, spending some time outdoors. So um, Norwegians have this saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. And so really bundling up. And this is something I learned because it gets cold in the winter in New Jersey. We live by the ocean, you know, the, the, it can be really, you know, sort of damp and humid and cold, but I would just do my thing of like, okay, I'm wearing my sneakers. I'm wearing my jeans. I'm wearing my t-shirt and I put on a coat and now I'm good to go. Like that's totally insufficient. And now, you know, Norway really taught me how to dress. I have my woolen leggings and my woolen socks and my thermal shirt and my scarf and my woolen mittens and my hat. 
um, and, you know, really prepare to be out in the winter and, you know, make that what you're doing. And so, you know, when the weather's good, if there's a little bit of daylight, you can take a daylight walk. Um, when the weather's bad, there's actually something that can be so pleasurable about being totally bundled and either having a, a strong hood or an umbrella and walking outside in the wet, which people, you know, might, it might sound crazy, although maybe on the Isle of Lewis, people no, have- No, I, I absolutely second that. Um, last year, my wife bought me this kind of all-in-one big winter suit with a hood, um, which is like basically being dressed in a sleeping bag. And so when <laughs> I take the dog out for a walk, it's, I mean, you can just, in your pajamas, actually put on this big, um, big winter suit and it feels amazing. Even in a, in a, in a gale and pouring rain, you feel kind of cozy walking up the hills. Clothes do make it, getting the proper clothes does seem to make an incredible difference if you're able to do it. It makes a huge difference. And and there's something I think that's really unique about being outside in that kind of weather. It's like your face and your lungs are feeling like the crispness of the air, but your core and your extremities are warm. And it just connects you to nature and the elements in this way that I think is kind of profound and a little bit hard to describe. Um, And my friends in Norway also talk about how this idea that, you know, it's often much nicer to be out in that than you think it will be. So I think there's a big mental barrier to you think it's going to be terrible, but when you actually dress properly and go outside, it's quite lovely. And, And that shift is something I think you can only experience when you experience it firsthand. Um, and of course, there's a lot of coffee drinking. So hot thermos is also highly recommended. Um, okay. There's also in Norway, a lot of gathering around fire. So bonfires um, is something that people do for fun. And also something that even the children do at school. Like um, my friend was telling me that her daughter who's in third grade gets asked once or twice a month to bring a log into school. And so each of the children brings a log in and then at recess, they make a, a bonfire, which I think is quite sweet. Um, but, uh, so I think, you know, getting outside is one thing that, you know, we know that getting outside and moving are two things that are really strong indicators of well-being. And I think that's part of this sense that winter is limiting is the feeling that we can't be outside. So when we spend time outside, it really expands that idea that, um, winter's full of opportunities, but maybe you're not an outdoor person. I actually growing up was not, I was an indoor kid. I like to read books, not play sports. Um, and if that's the case, that's okay too. So sort of the second strategy is to make winter special and to lean into winter as a time of year when you get to do things that you only do in the winter. And so that might be indoor things. That might be this idea of you're going to curl up in front of a fireplace if you're lucky enough to have one. Are they common in the Isle of Lewis? I would imagine so. Very much so. Yeah, I'm jealous. I do. Even in San Francisco, I miss having a fireplace because there's something very special, I think, about sitting in front of a a real um, fire. So maybe you're going to spend the whole day reading a book or watching TV, and you're going to lean into that not because, oh, I'm stuck inside, so there's nothing to do but watch TV, but I get to have this cozy, relaxed, indulgent experience for the whole day. I don't have to feel, it's not, you know, beautiful and sunny out. So I feel guilty if I want to lay around in my pajamas. It's the perfect weather for that. And I'm going to really indulge in that. Um, it's this idea of coziness. So, um, I don't know if this is taken off in Scotland, like it has in the US, but the Danish word is hygge. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. So this, you know, the Norwegian word is kusselig, but this idea of, 
um, coziness, which, you know, often I think it's translated to like fuzzy blankets, soft lighting, lots of candles. And I think those are, you know, key ingredients, but it's really, it's more powerful than that to me. I think it's really this feeling of psychological coziness or psychological well-being where there's that deep contentment that comes from, I think, being warm inside when it's cold and dark and blustery outside. And that feeling of like, I have nowhere to go. I have nothing to do. I can just sort of be right now is I think to me that that feeling of huga or kusalig. Um, and so you can really lean into that in the winter and make it a time for to do that special thing. I think especially this year, you know, as a lot of people are facing lockdown and are unfortunately stuck inside or can't do holiday travel, how can we find opportunities to do things indoors in the winter that are special, whether that's making time for creating, you know, writing, writing poetry, writing letters to friends and family, pursuing arts, um, baking and cooking. There is one guy I spoke to um, in Canada who said he always looked forward to the winter because he loved to bake bread and his wife wouldn't let him bake bread in the summer because it made the house too hot. So when the winter rolled around, he could crank up the oven and break, bake bread. And, you know, we eat a lot of roasts and stews and cozy foods this time of year. And I think people inherently take pleasure in all of that and really enjoy all of that, mm. but they often don't connect that to the winter. They often are just like, these are things I like to do, but they don't think of it the way they think of like, oh, I get to go to the beach because it's summer. I get to do these cozy things, eat these cozy foods, put up my Christmas decorations because it's winter. They don't thank the winter and give winter its due for that. And so I think you can really find the ways to do things that you like to do that you only do in the winter and look for those opportunities to make winter special. And then the third thing is to appreciate winter. So, you know, sort of in your thoughts when you're baking your bread and you're like, thank you, winter, for this opportunity to bake bread, that is appreciating the winter. Um, you can also do it in your speech. So, so far, this has been universal everywhere I've spoken to, but you can weigh in for the Isle of Lewis. Do you all make small talk by complaining about the winter weather? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think everybody in Britain does that. So to, yeah, yeah. It's very, very universal. It's, it's a very common way to make small talk is to sort of bash on the weather. And I think there's more weather bashing that happens in the winter than in the summer, even if it's like, you know, really hot. Um, you can do that in Norway too, though. People in Norway don't do it as much. There's still some complaining about the darkness, but this is, I mean, this is one of the things I learned from Norway is that there's less of that. There's more appreciating the winter. There's more of, I can't wait to go skiing this weekend. There's more, oh, I just feel so cozy. There's more of, oh my God, this cup of tea is like extra comforting this morning. There's more, look how beautiful the light is. And so I encourage people to do that in their own lives and to fight that habit of bashing the winter and to find something to focus on that they enjoy and use that to make small talk. Because when you say something out loud, it really changes the way that you think about it. And what we focus on influences what we pay attention to, influences what we expect, influences what our experience is actually like. And so you can appreciate the winter by trying to consciously and mindfully shift your attention towards what you like and enjoy and shift your speech by, you know, being a little bit more generous and appreciative um, of the winter. Um, and I like these 
sort of three strategies in combination because there no there's not one size fits all and there's they're not a step order so like if you you know are an outdoors person start by going outside first and seeing if that makes you like the winter more if that's not for you start by making inside really cozy. If you're having a hard time with that, just fake it till you make it and say some nice things about the winter until they sink in, you know? And on any given day, you can try one of these and see what sort of helps nudge you towards that mindset. It's, it's been really interesting to see how far your research has traveled, you know? And um, when, you, when you look up your name online, you find lots of articles and from various news outlets, all of which are what we can learn from the Norwegians about getting through the winter. You know, so there's a real desire, I think, for, uh, for, this, for, for this information. And, um, uh, and, it, and it's been covered in the New York Times and The, and the, and the Guardian and CNN and all, all kinds of places. And um, in fact, where I discovered your research was through um, a, a newspaper article um, a, a few months ago. And this, it seems like there's been a kind of new round of publicity for, for what you do because of the lockdown. And, and the article I read was, was about what we can learn, what we can learn from the Norwegians, you know, that, 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 that phrase again, um, about a winter lockdown. Um, because I think at, the, at, at that point, it, we were suddenly facing that kind of second lockdown through the winter. So it, it feels more kind of relevant than ever um, what you're, uh, what, what you're uh, exploring and, uh, and writing about. That's right. Thank you. I mean, no one's been more surprised than me. And it sort of um, comes back every year when daylight savings comes around. But as you said, this year, there's been sort of renewed interest uh, with, you know, the winter lockdown and the pandemic. Um, and I think it's interesting because, of course, a lot of this I observed in Norway. I think Norway does this really well. But one thing I've learned from talking to people all over the world is that in every culture, there are rituals for appreciating and celebrating the winter. You know, I had never heard of the Dark Skies Festival until you reached out to me. And it's such a beautiful example of celebrating the darkness and celebrating the winter. And, you know, I think Norway, you know, people think Norway has that that secret fairy dust. But I think really it just so happened that that was where I observed this. But I think in all cultures that experience winter, there are examples of people or rituals or communities or festivals that are celebrating the winter. And there's, I think, a lot more work to be done to acknowledge the insight and wisdom from countries besides Norway and what we can learn about how to appreciate and enjoy the winter. Fantastic. Well, well, Carrie, thank you so much for sharing all these insights and experiences with us. Um, If people wanted to find out more about your work, um, how would they do that? Um, they could go to my website, carrielebowitz.com. That's probably the best way. You can read more about my work there. You can also reach out and contact me. Um, just from my preliminary research on the Isle of Lewis, I would love to count myself among the number of tourists who come there. So if any listeners would like to invite me for any sort of wintertime mindset workshop, this is my completely shameless pitch that I would love to come to the Isle of Lewis. <laughs> You've been listening to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, which takes place at Anlanta on the Isle of Lewis, as well as online throughout February. The festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader, in partnership with Callanish Visitor Centre, Lewis Castle College, UHI, Stornoway Astronomical Society, and Gallon Head Community Trust. 
Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with The Scotsman and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anne Lanter's website, www.lanter.com. <laughs>